Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. While you probably have lots of code in your code base that you're proud of, it's almost certain that you didn't write all or even most of the code that executes while your application is running. Code reuse has always been a critical part of software development, but it's important to get it right. In this episode, we're going to discuss best practices for package management as it relates to modern software development. We're going to discuss ways to use software packages in your code while avoiding some of the problems that they can cause. But before we get started, Will, what have you been reusing lately? What have I been managing? Uh, (laughs) So I had this weird thing happen with my eye where my eyelid started swelling up last night overnight. And I woke up this morning with a little bit of a scratchy throat. And I've had, you know, I've had some sinus stuff going on for a few weeks. So I went to the doctor and got him to, you know, like look at my eye. The doctor was like, you know, I want to look at your throat because you got the scratchy throat. And so she looks at my throat and goes, uh, this looks pretty bad. So they gave me a COVID test, a strep test and a flu test. And I'm happy to say that I do not have the flu. The other two, apparently I tested positive for. So you can hear my voice. I don't sound bad. I don't feel bad. You did last week, bro. Yeah, but it's weird. I would think if I had both of those to any major degree, I would feel worse. So, yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, you got isolated home. And it's kind of like, well, that's what I do anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, knocks me out of going out to eat Saturday, but not a whole lot else. So, yeah, that's what's going on here. How about there? And since there is a different there than where you normally are. Since there is different there than there is normally there. Right. Yeah. So I am down in Florida. We spent the first little bit of the call setting up the audio and stuff. I brought my equipment down with me. Last time I came down, uh, when was it? That was August. Yeah. I've just brought a headset and thought, okay, I, it's a good quality headset. Uh, unfortunately, it picked up a little too much noise. And so, yeah, you could hear the kids playing. I have four nieces down here. So uh, anyway, I brought my good equipment that uh, should only pick up me unless they get really, really loud. So if you hear children playing, I am in another room and they should be upstairs or something, not over me. And they're supposed to be working on their homework, too. But, you know. It is what it is. Yeah, it's kids. It's kids. It's not a big deal. I've got my dog here with me. He doesn't like to to ride in the car, but he likes to come down here and visit them. So he came with me and he's being very well behaved, just laying on the floor beside me here. He enjoys playing with their dog too. So it's it's nice. I drove down Sunday yesterday being uh, President's Day. So it tells you guys when we're recording this. We went to SeaWorld. That was uh, a lot of fun. We had a little bit of an adventure before we left. We were getting ready and my four-year-old niece fell and busted her chin open like really bad. Had to take her to the PDR and get stitches. So that was 
interesting. My brother-in-law had to work, so it was just me and my sister. And so I had the other three girls, and we went to breakfast. Then we went to Target. Then we were going to go to Guitar Center, but they weren't open yet. Like I was like, can we go to Five Below? I'm like, yeah, sure, we can go there. So we go over to Five Below, and they weren't open yet. So we ended up at Dick's Sporting Goods. <laughs> playing around in the exercise equipment section. It was kind of fun. But then we made it to Five Below and over to the Guitar Center because apparently there's a shortage on lidocaine and they had to wait forever for it. So we didn't leave. I picked them up around 1 and we dropped them off at like 7.30 at the emergency room. Ouch. Yeah. So... It was a long day, but we did make it down. We spent the whole afternoon riding roller coasters. We got to ride every one at SeaWorld. Don't have a whole lot, but we got to ride every roller coaster and see two of the shows. The younger ones saw more shows, but uh, the older ones and I went and rode roller coasters. So it was a lot of fun. My nine-year-old niece really was fascinated with my bass guitar when they came to visit last. So at Guitar Center, we found her a mini bass that is the same color and style as mine. So nice. somebody might be getting something. Uh, anyway, that and I've been uh, working on a talk on leadership that I will probably turn into an episode. Saving money is hard, especially when you buy musical instruments for your family. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, his focus is on helping you to not only actually plan things out, but to take action on that plan so that you can create your best life. Guys, investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. With the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. And best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. What that means is he's not here to sell you a product, but to help guide you to a better financial situation. You can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics you probably face and interviews other IT professionals. And there they share how they navigated their own careers. You can also learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. We all use software written by other people. Some people more than others. Whether it is libraries that we statically link, like in the old days of C, packages we import, like most modern frameworks, or external microservices. No developer stands alone. Hey, let's not forget copying and pasting from Stack Overflow. Just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. While often shown as a solitary, isolating job in sort of the old hacker stereotype kind of movies, software development has since become an environment requiring a lot of collaboration. This collaboration still occurs even if you don't know or communicate with the people whose code you are relying on. While this collaboration has allowed us to build some amazing things, it also comes with a price. As a uh, friend describes it, hell is other people's code. You might be able to trust someone else's code, and you might not. You might be able to trust your mentor's code, and you might not. 
But you can never trust the notion that someone else's code is trustworthy for any given purpose. There are a lot of issues with bringing in dependencies to a code base. You know, you bring in might create security issues, performance problems, break your app in subtle and hard to detect ways. Thanks, Entity Framework, or even trap you in an ancient version of your framework of choice. While it may be cheaper and easier to import a software package to help with whatever you're doing, adding a dependency is not a completely free operation. It requires maintenance and verification of the code that you're bringing in. At the very least, even if the current version is perfect, which is unlikely, subsequent versions might still cause problems. In essence, as in economics, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Was it Tan Stoffel from uh, Robert Heinlein? There's no such thing as a free lunch? Yeah. Uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. That's the book. You guys should read that. Like, seriously, that's a really good book. Anything you do has a cost, and that includes the act of bringing in third-party code to avoid having to do certain work for yourself. If you're going to use third-party code, and you certainly are if you're going to get anything really done, then you need to make sure that your development processes take the unique risk and opportunities into account that such code provides. Now, done properly, these practices will not only insulate you from a lot of the risks of using other people's code in your application, but can also improve the overall quality of your code base. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the things you need to be doing to make sure that third-party code and your code that depends on it remains stable and doesn't cause problems for the rest of your development process. While these concerns aren't entirely restricted to situations where a package manager is in use, we're going to largely limit our discussion to those use cases because that is the most common case for modern software development. In the aftercast, we'll discuss ways to approach third-party dependencies from a managerial perspective and how to validate that package change is reasonable. So first off, you want to be able to detect out-of-date packages. This is very important. While your package manager will likely tell you that one or more packages are out-of-date, it is not very wise to trust your team to update packages as part of their normal course of work, even if that is part of their job definition or included in your coding standards. It kind of balloons the testing scope, takes time, and is something that's just easily missed. Honestly, what we have done is create stories for that. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Yeah, but... There's a difference of incentives here, right? If it's required for your team members, that's you know fine and dandy. But let's say you have a couple of different scrum teams working. And one team comes upon this and says, oh, this package is out of date. I need to update it as part of the current story I'm working. And instead of that story being a one-point story, which they estimated when they had their planning, but this package update adds a whole bunch of complexity and a whole bunch of testing scope. And if it had been included initially that story would have been an eight. Yeah. Right. And so you completely blow up their throughput and it looks like things are falling apart. And I know in scrum, you're not supposed to look at it and go, okay, you know, this team's number of story points they're completing has gone down and we're going to evaluate the team based on that. Right. You're not supposed to do that, but everybody knows it happens. And so the incentive structure is not appropriate for them doing that in line in another story. So this probably means that you're going to have to um, have some way of alerting that lets you know when packages are out of date. 
this might even mean stopping builds and deployments if something is out of date enough to go, hey, like this is really broken. You can't keep ignoring it. Uh, but you need to understand that ignoring it is going to be the sensible default for a developer that is interested in their own career. Also, be aware that not all packages need to be updated immediately and that people may not necessarily install the latest version of something immediately. You'll need to stay on top of this to avoid ending up with crazy out-of-date packages being used by your code base. It's sort of a tricky thing. Like We set it up so we have, like I said, a story for that so that it's like, all right, we can evaluate that. Yeah, we tend to do it during team week. But it can be kind of weird. So like if you go out and you go, hey, I have to add a package for this functionality and you go find a tutorial, right? So you run, you know, the NPM install, blah, blah, blah. Here's the version number. You bring that package in. Well, if that tutorial was written last year, that package is out of date. And that may be okay because you may legitimately need to, you know, hey, we need it to work like it worked last year. And I'm not concerned with updating it right now. And so you can't say that it always has to be the latest version. So you're going to start tracking this stuff. And you should also be aware that some package updates will really burn you. Uh, They change things like licensing, interfaces, how the code interacts with other parts of the system. Uh, I got burned a couple years ago. There was an entity framework update that didn't change method signatures, but changed the way that it generated SQL code going to the database. And we had timeouts all over the place after that update. And it wasn't really apparent until it got to prod. It was bad news. So like these kind of things can happen and you may not be able to upgrade immediately or ever, right? Like you may have to go, Hey, we're ripping this out and replacing it entirely. So we're not upgrading right now. And this means that you need to track the status of the various packages that you're using over the course of the development life cycle. You also want to make sure you're on the mailing list and notification list for critical packages so that you can find out quickly if a major vulnerability comes up and you have to update right away. And I think this is something a lot of organizations have kind of missed out on. You tend to find this out through the package manager instead of, hey, you know, management saw this or some senior dev saw it. It's like, hey, the package manager threw up a thing says, hey, there's a bad vulnerability here. Uh, NPM and NuGet both will scream at you about those now. So it's very important. The next thing you need to be able to do is you need to be able to determine the surface area of changed packages. And this is not as obvious as it sounds like. Obviously, when a package changes, you need to know what part of the system that thing impacted. Now, if you don't, you're going to have to test for regressions across the board. This also has security implications. If an update has occurred, you need to know which system boundaries need to be retested before rolling the code to any publicly accessible location. You also want to note here that this includes development and staging environments if those are exposed to the open internet. Yeah, and a lot of people do that, right? For testing purposes or for demo purposes. And you got to realize, hey, that's still a security hole that's in your infrastructure, potentially, in you know, a very bad way, especially if other things are not configured well. It's easy to miss this. You also have to be especially careful when a package is communicating across a security boundary. So like talking across a web interface, for instance, like an API interface or talking to your database or talking to a message queue that goes out somewhere else. You got to be really, really careful about that. Obviously, there's security issues here, but Updates that do this kind of stuff can also result in compatibility issues that are difficult to track. 
even small things like changes to JSON serialization. I've seen a situation where a JSON serializer got changed and somebody didn't notice the way that something was serializing and that stuff was going across a message queue, hitting a Lambda, getting pushed into a database and something else was reading it out a month later. And when that thing breaks, you have no idea what happened. (laughs) And so that's something to be aware of. Yeah. You also want to pay attention to any packages that reference an updating package. So for example, if package A depends on package B, then the impacted surface area of a change to package A is the union of the impacted area of both packages. Okay, that sounds really nerdy mathy the way Will wrote it. It makes me happy in my math nerdiness to to read it. It's correct, but it hurts your soul. No, no, it it makes me me happy. (laughs) But because of that, it's probably really complicated. So basically, if you have a package that depends on another one, then updating one of those is going to affect everywhere both of those packages are used. And if it's the one that is dependent upon, especially. Yeah. And don't assume that the authors got it all right with the update because they probably missed something because they're human. And that happens straight up. I mean, it's just the way life is. Yeah, it's it's obvious if it's the package that is dependent upon that, you know, the one depending on it is potentially at risk from that update, but the reverse can also happen, right? Because data is going in and coming out and potentially going back to the parent. So it's a lot easier to get burned here than you might think. So always take the largest set of things that you think could get touched and regression test those because otherwise you will get nailed eventually. So next you want to treat package updates as a regular recurring and separate ticket from other work. We kind of hinted at this earlier, but uh, if package updates are expected as part of the normal course of development, they either don't get done or things are constantly breaking because of the updates. Eventually, the latter case causes everyone to be reluctant to update anything. So, and I've seen this happen where this this is literally how we got to doing this, where it was like, all right, this is going to be deprecated or we can't use this functionality because it relies on a newer version of this other package and we haven't updated in years. And so it can be a pain if you don't have this set up as a basically regular thing that is separate from like, oh, I'm in here, so I'm going to update the package. No, that is not good either. Yeah, and... Package updates, especially major ones, uh, security updates or updates that touch a system boundary definitely need to be completely separate from other work. Not only does this make it easier to reason about what's wrong with an update when something happens, I wrote if, but when, but it also decouples it from everything else that's going on. So, you know, like you could tell, hey, my little update to this little corner case over here did break something halfway across the system or it was some other update. And that's extremely valuable because it really gets nasty to try to find these things if you get it interwoven, essentially. Also, you kind of want to batch your package updates. They can be kind of annoying if you try to do them as an individual. So you kind of want to put them all together in, in basically a single story or a single ticket. Though you may find that it is easier to reason about, you know, kind of what broke when you only update a single package before running 
a full suite of tests. So it's kind of like the way I would suggest doing this is I'm using stories, but the word ticket works too, but like have a story for updating your packages and then the individual tasks within that story are each package. So you update the package and test, update, test. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because, Will, you got a funny look on your face. Either that or they'll call froze at weird angle. That's the way I look. Oh, it's just, <laughs> sorry. It's, it's, it's been a while. I haven't it's seen genetics, you in like man. a week, you know? I forgot what your face looked like. It's been like a week, man. Well, I've got that weird eye thing going on, too, that you probably can't see behind my glasses. But you do have to kind of loop on it when you're testing updates. And so one thing you might do is run a subset of your regression suite every time you do a small update just to try to catch things in that packages area. And then you do several of those in a story and you get that pushed up and then you run the full regression suite off your own machine so that you can continue doing another chunk. It takes a lot of time, but man, if you update everything and some little weird corner case breaks, it is a nightmare to try to find what actually caused it. Uh, Cause I've done this one and just had to roll it back eventually. And you lose like a couple days of work. I've done the exact same thing. So everybody does it once. I think when I did it, I told you about it and you said the exact same thing. You're like, everybody does that once. And then we went out for drinks that night. I don't remember. It was like one of those things. Well, it's like, I can't teach you about the electric fence. I can only be there to tell you. Yep. That sucks. (laughs) Wear rubber soled shoes. Oh my goodness. Package updates should occur on a fairly regular schedule probably triggered by a calendar reminder for the most part. Uh, You don't want to try and remember to do this yourself because you're going to forget it, put it off for too long. And it needs to be at a fairly predictable interval so that when people see that something's out of date, they can go, okay, are there any major vulnerabilities on this? Like, can this wait until the next round of package updates? If it can, then let it. And if it can't, then deal with it now as an emergency ticket. That way people can kind of reason about it. Uh, from a safety perspective. So the next one, distrust and verify. In addition to unintentional vulnerabilities, breaking changes, and performance problems, in recent years, there have been an increasing number of packages released where security issues have been purposefully introduced. Either security issues or just like flat-out breaks. There was one guy that uh, introduced a non-terminating loop if you weren't doing something the way he wanted it done or something. I forget what the deal was. People do things like this. It's, you know, they vandalize their own open source projects sometimes. And that's a whole nother conversation about why that happens, but you don't want to be on the receiving end of this when it does. So you really, you can't necessarily trust a package vendor, even if their updates are delivered by a reputable package management system. I mean, there was the whole node left pad thing a few years ago that, should have made you a little bit cautious, uh, but there've been stuff you know, recently where I think there were some packages that I believe they were like trying to mine cryptocurrency on other people's servers. I'm not surprised, you know, off the wall kind of stuff. Like that's the security landscape now. And you have to accept that you live in that world. Yeah. Cause you either accept you live in that world and you deal with it or that world deals with you. You should always be on the alert for changes to a package that indicate a new party has taken over maintenance, that the package now does more stuff, especially if that stuff includes new features that require additional permissions. I don't like it when that happens. Or just large changes in general. 
it's one thing if it's like, oh, hey, we've announced that this new major version is coming out and it's that or if it's like, oh, hey, we do updates, Visual Studio Code monthly updates. So you expect big things to come out once a month. Or was every other month a big thing comes out or something? I don't know. But yeah, it's when it's not expected that you really need to be cautious. Yeah. And especially like, don't see that some huge new thing came out and then just go, okay, cool. I'll add it. Like, wait a minute and see if other people start screaming about it. (laughs) Because sometimes people get ambitious, right? Like, you know that you don't necessarily let the developers be the sole gatekeepers of stuff coming out from your organization, right? Like you got QA for that. You got user acceptance testing. You've got marketing, you got all these other people involved and you kind of don't want to be soliciting things to come out just based on the developers saying it's good. So definitely be cautious about that. You should also be doing things like verifying cryptographic signatures on any package updates to make sure they actually came from a trusted party. If a cryptographic signature is invalid, the code should not be released, nor should it be even run on a development machines because it could compromise those machines. And now that tends to be more of a thing with binaries than with other types of things. But you definitely want to make sure that when you receive a package that it came from who you think you got it from, because it might be in the NPM or might be in, you know, like NuGet and it's sitting there and it's got the wrong signing key because some other developer built it on their machine and pushed it up. And it turns out that their machine is compromised. Like it could be just something like that. It might not even be malicious by them, but it could be a a third party. Now, when bringing in a library, you should always consider what a malicious author could do with it. This means that you need to have your code set to have the least amount of privileges when you execute it, and that you need to also have some type of monitoring in place for unusual behavior from your application. Honestly, the fewer dependencies that you have, the better off you're going to be from a security standpoint. Yeah. I mean, the main thing is, is you don't want your web server to start communicating with a machine across the internet that you don't know what that machine is. Right. Or, you know, all of a sudden CPU utilization goes through the roof or storage utilization goes through the roof, or you start blasting out emails at a level that you've not seen before. Like you need to be on top of that. So that if there is a malicious package, you catch it as quick as possible, preferably by not having certain functionality in the main app where these packages get added. Next, along these same lines, you want to keep your dependencies as minimal as possible. Have as few of them as you can. You really shouldn't be adding new packages without carefully considering what they will do to your application. While a dependency can reduce the amount of code you have to write by yourself, it's not a maintenance-free alternative. Yeah, you know, there's the school of thought that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And you can look at some people's economic models, and they seem to think that the consumption of free lunches is a revenue-generating activity. We have the same thing in software development. Just adding packages willy-nilly, yeah, it may save you time right now, but it will hurt you in the long run. In general, your development team should be made aware of any dependencies that are added to a project, and you should be able to clearly describe a limited scope of what they do for you. This scope should be similar to what the package does as a whole, so you don't bring in some massive thing for one little bitty feature. Limiting the number of packages 
you depend on is also a good idea because it makes it easier to keep track of what dependencies should be updated and when. You're very likely going to have some things that you can't just update immediately. Thing is, this list can get really unmanageable rather quickly as the number of packages that you rely on continues to grow. Yeah. And by the way, this is a good argument for microservices as well, right? Because this does keep that list small. You really want that list to be something that a developer can kind of hold in their head. You shouldn't make them do it, but a developer should be able to go, oh, we didn't update this because X reason, not I've never heard of that package before. What is it? Because that's kind of a problem. So the next one is to watch out for less obvious dependencies. And this sounds obvious right now, but it is really easy to miss certain categories of system dependencies. Two common ones are dependencies for testing and development tools and dependencies of your build pipeline. Developer tools that are not ever deployed on a production server are easy to miss in terms of problems and vulnerabilities. While they aren't likely to show up in an audit, they can cause compatibility and security problems kind of all on their own. So, you know, think about things like Webpack, for instance, right? Or your code linters, all those kind of things, right? They have access to your code base. They have access to your file system, your machine. If they get a vulnerability, how likely are you to know versus something that's actually used in production that has a security audit team potentially looking at it? It's a pretty you know, big different category. And, you know, another similar category is tools that are used in your build and deploy pipeline. It's really easy to forget about them, especially for team members that don't like dealing with them in the first place. People tend to set up their build pipelines and then they leave it alone. Once it works, it's out of sight, out of mind. And, uh, you know, there's probably loads of people out there right now that have the uh, log4j vulnerability, for instance, in their build pipeline, and they have not thought about it yet. I guarantee you there's somebody that hears us talking about this right now that is feeling very uncomfortable. Probably, probably so. Yeah, it's easy to miss. So guys, you want to ask yourself, how many of your developers are running on an old version of NPM or even Node itself? And then realize that the worst case is probably worse than you guess. And the situation on your build pipeline is probably worse than that. That really sounds negative. <laughs> that oh, I think about it, it. <laughs> but it is that bad. Yeah, that's why I said it so dryly, because I'm like, you know, he's right. I can't even put a positive spin on this because he's right. Well, I mean, the thing is, is you're trying to get stuff done, right? And those things don't feel like things that get in the way of getting things done. And they aren't until they are. So finally, the last thing you need to do is you need to have some way of monitoring for stale packages. So in addition to package updates, uh, you have to watch for packages that don't have any activity for a while. Uh, While it's entirely possible for a package to be done in the sense that updates are no longer needed, it's more likely that a project just gets abandoned. It is hard to run an open source project. And if you do it for a while, you build a package that a couple hundred people like, and you're like, this didn't really do anything for my career or I just got promoted to management and I'm busy and you let that package kind of just go out to pasture for a while, problems will start to accumulate, especially as the underlying framework changes. While this may have no security or really usability implications in the short term, it's 
not likely to stay that way in the long term. You know, you also need to track when the most recent package version updates occurred. If they haven't happened in a while, you need to look at replacing the package with something newer. And this is another kind of thing for having them as a separate ticket or story because that's part of it. Yeah, and that's open-ended too, right? Because you got to see how in the world this other package is going to work. It's probably not going to be the same calling signatures or even the same thought process. You may be in for a big refactor. But you don't want to find this out when the package is 10 years out of date and a sudden vulnerability comes out. (laughs) I saw some jQuery stuff that was easily 10 years out of date at a previous job. And, you know, there were there were security implications by that point and replacing it didn't happen. Now, really old packages can be very, very stable, but you may find that they limit your ability to update other parts of your system over time as well. Beach has got a story about this with a simple object access protocol. So it wasn't actually a package. It was a third party service that we were using that required that. And so we had to build it out with SOAP for that and use the old packages designed for that to make it work. But yeah, I mean, you're right. They were older, but they had been continued to be updated because people were still using SOAP, like this company that we were we were using. Like, And it was one of those things that was way, way above my head when it comes to the decision as to whether or not to use the software. And their developers told us they had zero intention of ever changing to use anything but soap. And I'm like, all right, well, the world is passing you by and eventually even we'll stop using you. You know, I mean, not not trying to be rude to him and I don't want to name names or anything on here, but, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, that's nice, but you're not keeping up with the modern and people aren't going to continue to use it because like you can't build .NET Core applications and use SOAP. Microsoft has gone away from that. And yeah, at least not with the core framework. Yeah. Yeah. I bet there's a way to pay through the nose and do it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there is if you really... If there isn't, somebody out there could write that and make some money, but then you got to deal with SOAP. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's not me. I'm not it. A stale package can also indicate that a package was renamed, rebranded, etc. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to replace it but you have to be aware of it so that when it comes time to do the update, you can actually find the thing that you're supposed to update. Um, I've seen that where they've renamed packages a few times and it's, it's obnoxious. It's a lot of fun to try to track those down. Yeah. I hate when they do that. What I've, what I've noticed though is when they rename it or rebrand it, a lot of times it is they like a major change to it. Yeah. It's namespace parkour at the least. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. So guys, using third-party code improves productivity and is often necessary in order to get things done in modern software development. However, doing so is not a zero-cost act. Third-party code can and will cause you problems in your development, testing, and production environments alike. These problems can range from small annoyances to system failures to security holes to introduced vulnerabilities uh, that can ultimately destroy the quality of your system. If you're going to use third-party code, you must take steps to make sure that your implementation is as stable and safe as possible while still allowing you to update at a reasonable cadence. It takes practice and discipline to do this properly, but you really need to do it. Your users depend on you. 
that pretty much wraps us up. Beach, what do you have this week for us for Tricks of the Trade? So guys, when we were talking about package management, we had an entire point on uh, distrust and verify, which when it comes to software developed by other people, you absolutely need to do. However, when it comes to dealing with people, especially with people who are in charge, like your boss, you kind of want to do something a little bit different. You want to trust, but verify when it comes to them. You gain trust by trusting. However, you don't want to blindly follow. So you trust the person, but also verify because, you know, people are wrong. A lot of times they're not intentionally trying to lead you astray, but they may be mistaken or misunderstand something. And so that's why you verify. But you trust what they say. By putting trust in them, that's going to build trust. Like they will trust you. I've been reading this book on leadership and there's a whole section about trusting your boss so that your boss will trust you. It's very, very key. And I'll have that actually in the uh, the episode uh, that I write about that. Uh, it's going to come out in probably a month or two. So it's pretty much all I've got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.